Welcome to Real Film Review, the show that delivers short spoiler-free reviews of films, TV shows, and limited series, followed by a deep dive discussion. Brought to you by your host, Chris Cheney. Here is Real Film Reviewed. Welcome back, everyone. I have a special real crime episode planned for you today. I'll be breaking from the normal format of Real Film Reviewed to have some fun playing investigative podcaster. I'll be breaking down the details of a case, theories, and my thoughts referencing a documentary film or series that you can view. I'll be doing a few episodes like this periodically as part of the Real Crime segment episodes. This first mysterious case is from 2013, The Vanishing of Elisa Lam at the Hotel Cecil. The docuseries I watched, which explained the details of this case, was Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. This docuseries was released in 2021. It was directed by Joe Berlinger, and it features many individuals from the time of the crime, such as the hotel manager, maintenance workers, former guests of the hotel, former detectives, forensic pathologists, and many more. This docuseries is four episodes long and has a total runtime of three hours and 40 minutes. It can be viewed on Netflix and is rated TVMA. And just for reference, there are no photos shown of any bodies, but there are some blurred slow motion reenactments. The rating is more for referencing crimes that have occurred in the hotel over time. You don't actually see any graphic material. Elisa Lam was a 21-year-old Canadian student at the University of British Columbia who went on vacation to the West Coast. She was visiting various locations in California when she arrived at the Cecil Hotel in L.A. on January 28, 2013. By February 1st, she had vanished. Elisa had a significant digital footprint and her media of choice was Tumblr. She blogged fairly often and openly about her personal mood, her feelings, wishes, pretty much treating her blog kind of like an open journal. Her parents had migrated here from Hong Kong. So her and her sister were first generation living in Canada. Her parents owned a restaurant and Elisa was probably feeling sheltered and wanting some adventure in her life when she decided to go on this solo trip to California. On her destination list was San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Santa Cruz, which we learned from her blog post on Tumblr. Elisa's trip would be cut short in Los Angeles. January 31st was the last time Elisa's parents heard from her, and she usually checked in every single day. 18 to 20 detectives arrived at the CISO Hotel the day that she was reported missing, which was February 1st, and they began their search. And to understand what happened to Lisa Lamb and the panic that there was to find her, you have to know a little bit about the history of the hotel. It was called the Hotel Cecil, famously. It's also known as the Cecil Hotel. There was a lot of different remakes and remodels that they did. Let's take a look at the history of the hotel. The Hotel Cecil initially opened in 1919. Actually, it was built in 1919. I believe it opened in 1924. 
It was originally a traveler's hotel built to accommodate the large amount of transients and tourists that were visiting booming 1920s Los Angeles. It stands at 15 stories tall with no 13th floor. It has 700 rooms and was smack in the middle of downtown L.A. The hotel grew in success for almost 10 years until 1929. And for those who don't know, 1929 was the year of the stock market crash that brought this country to its knees and caused the greatest depression in America's history. After the crash of 29 during the 1930s, the hotel became a place for older men to stay cheaply. It proceeded to carry on like that for years as being a low-income hotel for travelers and ultimately for the residents of the surrounding area to have a place to sleep at night. During the 80s and 90s, it was considered a scandalous hotel, renting out rooms for 2 to $3 a night. Guests would include some of the worst clientele that you can imagine to include Ricardo Ramirez, better known as Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, a serial killer, serial rapist, kidnapper, child molester, and burglar, who stayed at the hotel for a time during the time that he was committing these crimes before he was ultimately captured and convicted in 1989. The docu-series goes a little, fit, a little bit more into the specifics of that case and uh, of a couple of other residents of the hotel, but not much more than that. The docu-series interviews a former guest of the hotel that attests to the vibe of the hotel between the late 70s and 80s, there's also kind of a weird character that they interview. I felt bad for the guy, but he was a pretty scary individual, so there as well, too. How can a hotel get away with providing services to such outrageous figures like serial rapists and killers? That's pretty simple. It's smack in the middle of Skid Row, a 56-block location which is home to approximately eight to 10,000 of Los Angeles homeless. It is east of downtown LA, bordered by 3rd Street to the north, 7th Street to the south, Alameda Street to the east, and Main Street to the west. And the address of the Cecil Hotel is 640 South Main Street. It has existed for over 100 years, Nearly all of the city's homeless services are located in this area, so jails, prisons, and mental health facilities would dump people here when they were ready to be released. People with serious mental instabilities, drug addictions, and criminals would be released into this area as part of what they called a containment plan. They basically wanted to keep these kinds of people from the rest of L.A. Many would end up taking residence in the CISO Hotel, there is another reason for this, which I'll get into in a little bit later. This area around the hotel was a place that was designed for violence to naturally occur. The CISO Hotel has been described as lawless and a place where serial killers can go to let their hair down, as quoted in the docuseries. Amy Price was the hotel manager of the CISO Hotel for 10 years from 2007 to 2017, which was during the time that Elisa Lam was a guest of the hotel, obviously. She was in 2013. And the Netflix docuseries does interview her throughout the episodes as well. She provides a pretty good outline as to what was going on during that time. She had never worked in a hotel before. She wasn't used to death, working with coroners, even working with the police, crime, 
anything like that. And that became a daily thing at the Cecil. It was important for her to do the interview to show that the person who was running the hotel at the time that this uh, case all went down did care. She appeared to be genuine and innocent and tried to divulge as much as she could. The docuseries interviews her throughout the series along with a few former guests of the hotel that speak about its history as well as uh, what it was like to stay there during the time that Elisa Lamb vanished in 2013. All right, so let's get into what happened to Elisa Lamb. Elisa checked into the hotel on January 28th, 2013, as we know, and was due to check out on February 1st, which was the day that she was reported missing by her parents. She stayed in room 506, which was a shared female bunk room. There were community toilets and showers, which were down the hall on her floor. When the detectives arrived at the hotel, they went to her room first to look for potential evidence. However, all of her belongings were bagged up due to a hotel protocol. When a resident does not physically check out of the hotel and they leave property in the room, they're instructed to bag up the property and store it for 30 days. So that's the maid staff or the cleaning staff that comes in that's instructed to do this. Her laptop, her prescriptions, her wallet, clothing, and other items were left behind. The employee who bagged up her belongings had stated that the room was in disarray, stating that it was just messy, but did not appear to be foul play. There was no sign of any forced entry into the room, no paraphernalia or drugs in the room, which was noted by the investigators. They didn't have much to go on since there wasn't any evidence to point them in any direction, and they looked at her background, her itinerary, and her social media accounts. Her parents had migrated here from Hong Kong, as we know, And we already learned about her being a young student of the university and was relatively sheltered. So she was a fairly prolific poster online. And that was kind of the biggest area where they got the majority of the evidence in the beginning. It did lay out her itinerary online. And she also had several posts relating to what she was doing or where she was going online throughout her trip. We learned that she was going to the taping of a television show She visited a bookstore and ordered some books, and she had also posted about exploring and wanting to meet someone during her vacation. The investigators, of course, looked into all of those things, and we'll dive more into some of what they found there, but they end up believing that the Cecil had something to do with her disappearance. The hotel turned over everything that they could to the authorities, hours of hotel footage taken throughout the hotel, employee lists, guest lists, and, of course, the contents of her room. They began wondering if she had met someone while in L.A., and they may be able to see this person come or go on the hotel footage. They would be a person of interest in this case if they could identify somebody on those tapes. A couple investigators were assigned to go through hundreds of hours of footage, which was pretty tedious. They learned that there were not cameras on every floor, and there was not a camera on Elisa Lamb's floor either. The positions of the cameras were not always in the greatest positions, making it that much more difficult. The two investigators were assigned, one of which was Greg Cadding, who worked on the Biggie Smalls case. The two detectives looked for about 20 hours a day, minute by minute, through the footage when suddenly 
Elisa popped onto the screen. Now, this was the infamous elevator footage that went viral on the internet. I'm sure if you Google it, you can pull it up and find it. I highly advise you do watch it if you're interested in this case. The investigators noted her erratic behavior and completed reviewing the rest of the footage. They concluded that she never leaves the hotel. And then it became almost a manhunt in the hotel. They brought in search dogs, which are specifically scent searching dogs, and searched throughout the hotel to include the roof. In the coming months, the internet sleuths, true crime buffs, and people who were interested and obsessed with the case would analyze and call the tip lines with possible insight as to what happened. Now that we know that Elisa is still in the hotel, there is a frantic attempt to find her due to the history of the hotel. There were thousands of 911 calls during the time that Amy Price was the manager. There was even a police sniper at one point, which was responding to a stabbing call, and the person was loose in the building. There would be about one to three calls a day from fire attempts drug trips gone bad, and many other incidents that would occur. A number of officials worried about Elisa not being equipped to function in a hotel like that. They began looking in every single room, all of the closets, even in the basement, in the lockers that were down there, any place where any person could be stowed. They searched the ground with the dogs. They even searched the roof. They asked about the garbage routes, the doors the employees were entering and exiting through. The scent tracking dogs eventually tracked her scent to the fifth floor towards a big window that looks out to the street. And outside of that window is a fire escape. And that is where the dog lost the scent. So this was on the fifth floor, which was Elisa's floor. I just want to repeat that because that's important. And I'm going to call some things out about that later. They called in an LAPD air support division and a helicopter illuminated the roof while canine units searched the roof. They found nothing. It has now been two weeks since she was reported missing and the next morning after this roof search and this overall search, there were four detectives that were assigned to remain on the Elisa Lamb case and the rest of the detectives that were on the case were then pulled to the Dorner case, which was a case of a cop killer that was on a rampage. Not going to get into too many specifics with that, but that was pretty much a cop killer that was just going after cops and promising to kill as many of them as he could. So the majority of the detectives got pulled except for four. All right, so they move to analyze the elevator footage, which becomes the last time that Elisa's lamb is seen. With no other leads, they release the footage to the public for further insight. So again, using that tip line and listening to the different insights of the individuals, the internet sleuths and things like that. Many believed that Elisa looked as though she was interacting with someone that you can't see on the footage. You can tell while she's on the elevator that she appears panicked and is pressing numerous buttons frantically. This appears to tell the story that she saw something or was engaged in something with someone else when she became afraid and got to the elevator and tried to get to any floor other than the one that she was on. After some investigating, we learned that the floor that Elisa was on was the 14th floor. Alright, now we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to talk about Stay on Main. Gentrification in this area did begin in 2007. The hotel was sold in 2007 for $26 million and it was considered the worst hotel in downtown at that point. 
They began remodeling the hotel, and at the time, there were about 80 tenants living in the Cecil. The new owner wanted the tenants evicted, and that's when they received a stop order. The Cecil Hotel and others like it are listed as a residential hotel, and there are restrictions. It is also a part of a program for Skid Row, which required a certain number of rooms to be available for tenants to live weekly, monthly, and in some cases, yearly. The hotel was for low income and the homeless of Skid Row to receive greatly discounted rates for rooms. Stuck with what to do with the hotel, they invented Stay on Main, and they split the hotel into two hotels in one building. Floors two and three were for tenants, Floors 3 and 6 were the stay on main, and floors 6 through 14 were reserved for CISO hotel guests. They had two lobbies and two entrances to keep them as separate as possible. The only thing that they could not change were the communal elevators, which were accessible and used by all of the tenants and guests of the hotel. When Elisa booked her room, she booked it for the stay on main. She was staying on the fifth floor, which was one of the three floors of Stay on Main. So it kind of makes a little bit more sense when you Google the Cecil Hotel. If you go to the on-site, I think is what it's called, the floor view or the street view. If you stand in front of it and you rotate that 180 degrees, you will see the tents and everything of Skid Row. But... The Stay on Main website that Elisa was looking at had trendy branding and a unique bright orange color palette to their rooms and the lobby. So it makes sense that this was potentially a trendy, inexpensive hotel for her to be while she explored L.A. I have to say that while I understand the business need to make money back on a $26 million investment and that stop order being a huge obstacle... I also feel that it was morally irresponsible for them to advertise Stay on Main the way that it was. The location was dangerous and it attracted guests from all around the world who were looking to explore L.A. They would walk outside of the hotel to explore and see what was around and were met with the streets of Skid Row which is considered one of the most dangerous areas in the world. And to be fair, if you Google stay on Main, again, you'll see the little neighborhoods, but you'll see before you even look at the street view that Skid Row pops up as the area right where the hotel is. There is no mention of Cecil Hotel on the map, but you can clearly see Skid Row is in the surrounding area and it says stay on Main. But again, if you're not from the country, you may not understand or even know what Skid Row is or means. You may not think that's something that you should Google. Maybe, I mean, it looks like it's an area, like a a small village or a town or something like that. So for me, sometimes I look up areas like that just to see what the vibe is around there. But Again, not everybody's going to do that when you're looking for something cheap and expensive in a certain city. All right, getting back to the footage. With no leads, the police released the elevator footage of Elisa Lam, hoping that the public would be able to assist with any outside information that they may have from tips to possible sightings of Elisa while she was there. We'll talk more about this in a moment when we get into the theories. 
But it is important to note that the video appeared to show Elisa displaying odd behavior and possibly was communicating with someone, but no one else is seen on the footage. The police were concerned something malicious had happened to Elisa after seeing this had very little to go on, and that was the reason they released the video footage. A lot of what they were getting were just viewpoints on what they thought had happened different analyzations of the video. We'll get into that more when we get into theories about different things that they had found and identified on that video footage. But really, there were no actual real leads, no sightings or anything that the police were really looking for when they released that tape. So again, continuing the search, the guests of the hotel were complaining about water pressure. In the docuseries, they interview an international couple who complained about the water pressure and were moved two floors up, and the water pressure still did not improve. In addition to the water pressure, they also stated the water appeared dark and tasted and smelled funny. They were showering the water, brushing their teeth in the water, and drinking it before they had tasted it. The receptionist sent the maintenance man up to look at it after they had moved their room, and he claimed it made a noise before and after turning it on, which to him indicated that there was a problem, and he believed it was that there was no water in the water tank or that it was clogged. So he made his way up to the roof and he walks over to the water tanks where he climbs up the ladder and looks inside the main water tank, which is the tank that circulates the water through the other tanks. And when he looks inside, Elisa Lamb was floating face up in the tank. She was white like a ghost, as he described, and was completely naked. Her clothes were found at the bottom of the tank. There was a big misunderstanding regarding the hatch of the tank. The police arrived on site and during the press conference, which you can probably find, you can see that in the docuseries as well, they stated that the hatch to the water tank was closed. The maintenance worker on the docuseries clarified that this was incorrect and that when he approached the tank, the hatch was open. They did not ask him, but he mentioned that there was a ladder there to allow you to get to the top of the tanks. This ladder obviously had to be there as well as the hatch being opened. This caused a lot of misconceptions and thoughts of murder due to there being no way that Elisa could have shut the hatch from inside the water tank. Maintenance worked 24-7 and he mentioned this. However, it was not made clear what time that she was found, at least in the docuseries it wasn't. A couple of things with Elisa being found on the roof in the tank that did not sit well with the investigators was that they checked the roof with the dogs. The question on everyone's mind became, when was she placed in the tank? We learn that she was on the 14th floor on the elevator footage and that must have been where she accessed the roof from. However, the scent dogs lost her scent on the fifth floor, which was the floor that Elisa was staying on. So we'll talk about that in a little bit more in a second, but I thought that was interesting. There are many theories that people have shared on the internet since 2013, and there are certain pieces that lead them in these directions. So let's talk about a couple of the popular ones. 
The elevator footage was the largest piece that had the public thinking that someone did something to Elisa. The footage released was slowed down. The timestamp was blurred and appeared to not be counting correctly. At one point on the footage, you can see the footage appear to skip. There appeared to be 53 seconds that was missing from the footage. Some believe that it was edited to hide the person who did this, and this led to people believing that the hotel staff may have been involved. The way that someone caught this was after Elisa had exited from the elevator, we're watching an empty elevator for a moment. The door is opening and closing. And in one scene, when the elevator is closed, it goes from being closed to jumping about six inches and jumping forward. And when they dissected the timestamp, that's when they learned there was about 53 seconds missing from the footage. The theory with that was that somebody with access to the roof and the front desk alarm, meaning somebody with keys, killed Elisa and placed her in the water tank. The desk alarm was tested and this was in place. There were two entrances to the roof. One was on the 14th floor, which was the floor that Elisa was on when the elevator footage was captured, as mentioned. The other was the exterior fire escape, which ran the length of the building, except for the last level, where the fire escape turns into a single level ladder that is attached to the building. So psychologically, it's terrifying, but capability-wise, Elisa could have climbed that and that would be consistent with the scent dogs losing her scent on the fifth floor. However, there's no footage of her coming back down from the 14th floor. Again, it's a little bit odd to find out exactly how that worked. Anyways, we'll get into that a little bit more in a sec. The physical findings, the autopsy, and the toxicity reports were very important in this situation. They did get the forensic pathologist that first inspected Lisa's body. He wasn't able to fully determine a cause of death based on what he had seen. So that's when he decided to wait for the toxicity report, which would, of course, come several weeks later. We're going to go over everything that was found throughout this episode. But first, we're going to go over the autopsy reports. So the autopsy findings were there were no wounds or bruises, no signs of strangulation, no detection of sexual assault, no internal or external injuries, no foam in the airways, and her lungs were not congested with fluids. The forensic pathologist did note on the docu-series that he stated the absence of foam and the lung congestion were not enough to rule out drowning, meaning the absence of those didn't mean that she didn't drown. The original autopsy was undetermined due to waiting for the toxicity report, which would, as I mentioned, take several weeks. Elisa was bipolar and was on at least four different medications. Based on the fill date on her bottles and the amount that was in the bottles, it suggested that she was undertaking her medications. They were also unable to determine how long she had been in the tank. All right, looking at the toxicity report, they found no alcohol, no recreational drugs, no large number of prescriptions. So what they were looking for with that was, did she take a handful of pills to try and kill herself? So they didn't find any indication of that. The only thing that they did find were her prescribed medications that she should have been on. However, they did note that the levels were very low and this confirmed the thought that she was undertaking her medications. 
I was not 100% sold on her undertaking her medications just based on the tox report because she was in the water for an extended period of time and I feel that may have diluted her levels a little bit but with the combination of the pills having more in the bottles than what was supposed to be there for the fill date and going off of the prescribed dose of course the past behavior, that's what kind of summed it up for me. And that's what ended up confirming it for me that she most likely was undertaking her medications. All right, we'll stay put for just a bit. I'm going to take a small commercial break and we'll be back after a word about my sponsors. Welcome back, everyone. Picking up where we left off. Elisa had a history of undertaking her medication and stopping her medication, which can be even more dangerous. Her sister came forward and confirmed that she would go on and off of her medication from time to time in the past. She had done this and she confirmed that her behavior would become erratic during those times. She had feelings of paranoia, feeling like someone was watching or following her. And Elisa had bipolar 1, which is the most severe, and it gives symptoms of mania, depression, risk-taking, and highs and lows. All of which Elisa appeared to be having with the blog posts that led up to her final moments and possibly the water tank swim. The investigators had spoken to the people of the TV show taping that she attended and they stated that she was acting strangely there. She ended up writing a letter kind of manically and demanded that they give it to the host of the show and it became so odd that they had her escorted off of the property because of that erratic behavior. The hotel manager on the docuseries was reluctant to speak about this, but she spoke about the complaints against Elisa from the roommates that she was sharing her bunk room with. The complaints were about erratic behavior, and Elisa was leaving mean notes on the girls' beds, telling them to get out or leave. And they ended up moving Elisa to room 506, which she occupied by herself. And that was the one that we were all made aware of. It seemed to be a better option for her. She was also seen acting strangely in the lobby, yelling with her hands out, I'm crazy, but so is LA. Watching the docuseries and the different statements that people were making, the internet sleuths, ideas, and what they believe happened, mixing in with the coroner's final report with the toxicology report added in there, I did come to my conclusion. I did kind of consider all different things and ideas in this, but I feel like I summed it up okay. I had a different opinion before all of the facts came in, such as the coroner's reports and the remaining tests that they were waiting on to determine the cause of death, which was ruled an accidental drowning. Elisa was taking at least four medications and her struggles with depression were documented on her Tumblr posts. Her medication was recovered and they learned that the last fill date of the prescription and based on the fill date and the amount of pills that were remaining in her bottle suggested that she was undertaking her medication. When the toxicity reports came back, there were no traces of any drugs in her system other than her prescribed medications, which were lower levels than they should have been if she was taking her medication as prescribed. For me, as I stated, I thought with her being submerged in the water tank for who knows how many days, this may explain why her levels were diluted. I thought that this was at least possible, but combining that with the pills that were still in her pill bottle, it's hard to think that that was the case. 
Talking with her sister, authorities learned that she had gone off of her medication in the past. She had a history of it, and some of the symptoms were paranoia and feeling like she was being watched or followed. Many linked this to the video in the elevator. In the footage we see in the documentary, I can see why some may think this, and I did as well. However, I searched the internet and found the footage. It was fairly easy to obtain. You can do it for yourselves. After watching the footage, it appeared to me that she is confused and getting frustrated because she was waiting for the elevator to move and it wasn't. She gets in, presses a number of buttons in the middle row straight down and then proceeds to wait normally. When the door does not close, this is when she starts acting strange, as they've said and what we can see in the footage. But really, it looks like she thought someone was holding it open outside since the door was not closing. Then she jumps out to try and catch them, and when she does, she doesn't see anyone. She walks back into the elevator, presses more buttons, and then sort of hides in different corners of the elevator. And then she exits again, and this was the part that caught my eye in the part they showed in the documentary. Her hand movements, people said, appeared like she was talking with someone. It looks like she was trying to, to me, it looks like she was trying to trigger the sensor for the elevator to close the door. Then when it didn't, she got frustrated and I'm assuming walked away to try and find a stairwell that would allow her to get down to her room because we know that she's on the 14th floor. A lot of people say that there appears to be a foot in the footage and I think when she turns, it's the back of her flip-flop that she was wearing and I think it was fairly obvious in the video. It made sense with her movement and how it turned. I'll post the link to the footage that I watched in the show notes for you, for you all, but you can also Google it to check it out and see what you think. She either went to the roof via the stairwell or the exterior window. The direction she walked in the video was the direction of the stairwell with the roof access. There were only two ways to the roof and there was no evidence to show that she or anyone else went through either way. For the sake of the story, I sided with the exterior window. She climbed up the fire escape maybe to access a way to get down to her room, or maybe she was just exploring at this point. She climbs the ladder and maybe got a thrill from doing that. Bipolar 1, as we learned, can cause someone to have impulsive or thrill-seeking tendencies. She may have seen the water tanks up there. And I'm thinking that she saw that film Dark Water, which one of the internet sleuths had mentioned in the documentary. This film's basic components match some components of the Elisa Lamb case. The film was released about 10 years before Elisa died, featured a young girl who dies by climbing in and getting trapped in the water tank and drowning. I'm thinking Elisa used the ladder and climbed up into the water tank. So the water may have been higher when she first got in. And then as the water level changed because the water was being utilized, she realized that she was trapped because there's no ladder or any other way for her to pull herself up from the inside of the tank. She may have been just trying to tread water as long as possible, maybe thinking that the water would fill back up at some point and bring her back up to the top. So she may have been thinking that, but either way, she was trying to tread water for as long as possible, eventually I think taking her clothes off due to the weight. She may have even taken her clothes off immediately after getting into the tank. We really don't know. Hypothermia is also a factor, and due to the physical changes going on inside the body, this could have prompted her to take her clothes off. The coroner mentioned that in the docuseries, that that could be something that could happen as well. But it gives us an explanation. With the tox and autopsy back, there was no indication of any foul play. 
this is not the way people are killed in that hotel. <laughs> They're killed brutally and without care to the victim. Many of the female victims are raped and there was no physical indications of any kind of foul play. I felt it would be too hard for someone to carry her over pipes and then set up the ladder and then carry her up the ladder up to that huge tank and then put her in there. Something that interests me, the dogs lost the scent at the window of the floor that she was staying on, which was the fifth floor. But the elevator footage was of her getting off on the 14th floor and walking to the left. There is a window with a fire escape that leads to the roof, and there is also a set of stairs that leads to the door access to the roof. There is said to have been an alarm that goes off when this door is opened. The hotel manager confirmed that there was an alarm that goes off at the front desk, which requires a key to turn off. Internet sleuths who visited the hotel said that they saw a huge sign, well, not a huge sign, but just saw a sign that mentioned this alarm, but when he pushed it, he said he couldn't hear anything. This could be because the alarm sounds at the front desk and not at the top to avoid possible panic. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But what I'm curious about is where the dogs lost the scent because they searched the entire hotel. If she came back down, we would have seen her on the elevator footage. And why go down to go back up? Even if she took the stairwell that did not have cameras in it, this would be from the 14th floor to the 5th floor. It doesn't make any sense. So why did the dogs lose the scent at the fifth floor if she was last seen on the 14th floor? This could mean a couple of things. Maybe she was not in the tank yet when the police did the search, which is one idea. Maybe she was carried to the tank and this is why her scent is lost. What is still unknown, so there's a few things that wasn't really explained, at least as far as the docuseries goes. It may have been explained as far as the case goes, but at least from what the public knows, the missing 53 seconds of the footage, we know that the elevator door stays open for two minutes when hitting the hold button, as we see her do in the footage. So that was one of the buttons that Elisa presses. So when she's pressing all of the buttons down the center, one of the buttons that she presses is the hold button, which holds the elevator there for two minutes. So the entire time that she's on the footage and she looks like she's having an episode, it's because she actually pressed the elevator hold button and she doesn't understand why the elevator is not moving. And to me, it looks like she's doing all of these things to try and trigger that. So that was kind of the explanation for that. And that's what we found after or the Internet sleuths found after doing a little bit of research is they went in and they pressed that elevator hold button, which they did see in the footage was one of the buttons that she pressed. And they did a timer that it stayed open for two minutes after hitting that hold button. But doesn't explain that 53 seconds. <laughs> All right. When was she put in or when did she get in the water tank? Police searched the roof with tracking dogs and did not get her scent. There were pipes that you would have to walk across to get to the tank that she was in. It may be possible that they were not able to catch the scent back there if the dogs were not able to get back there. The coroner was also unable to determine exactly how long she had been in the tank. He was very particular to not give a time frame on that. He just stated that he wasn't able to determine how long she was in the tank. The elevator buttons, because before the buttons were pressed, she was acting odd. So when she came into the elevator, why did she press all of those buttons? 
This could be a number of reasons. I think that this could have been because she didn't like the way that the motion of the elevator felt when dropping from one floor to another. So sometimes, say, if you're on the 14th floor and you're going to a lower floor, like the fifth floor, it might be, especially older elevators, it might kind of scare you a little bit to, you know, drop that far that quickly, you know. So it could have just been something that she did where she pressed all of the floors so that it would be an easier you know, elevation down to her floor. Or it could have been that she saw something that freaked her out. Many stated that the whole episode appeared to be due to a bipolar episode. We'll never know, but I've stated my view on it. Other possibilities, haunted. Clearly, if you believe in the paranormal, which at this point, it's kind of hard not to, you could easily believe that some sort of spiritual influence could be at work there. The documentary goes through the history of death and crime that occurred there, and this would certainly have you believing without a doubt that the hotel is haunted. The Darkwater film from Japan and the remake in the U.S. was another factor. The core components of Darkwater, which came out years before Elisa got to the hotel, were very similar. The Internet Sleuths also had fun with this one. The daughter in the film and Elisa both have red sweaters on. Elisa had on kind of a red hoodie zip up and the little girl had on kind of a button down sweater. They also both drown in the water tank. And it's possible that Elisa saw this film and may have been reenacting it herself. One question was, it's kind of irrelevant now that it's been confirmed that the hatch was open when the maintenance man arrived on scene, the person that found Elisa in the water tank. He did confirm the hatch was open. But one of the questions that came up was, did they dust for Elisa's fingerprints on the hatch of the water tank that she was found in? That was a good question. Because if she was the one that climbed in, her fingerprints would have been on that hatch. The family filed a lawsuit against the hotel claiming risk of the roof access and people being able to get to the roof indicating negligence. Also that there were no locks on the water tank, on any of the water tanks. The hotel countered with what I feel was a fairly reasonable arguments. The fire escapes have to be accessible to everyone. It's an old building and due to fire safety regulations, they have to comply with being able to keep those accessible. There were no regulations at the time to lock lids of the water tanks. The roof is for employees only. The signs are marked as such. There's an alarm that was set that goes off at the front desk. So the protocols were in place. Obviously, they uh, ended up losing that lawsuit. And there were a couple of weird things that the docuseries goes over. I didn't list everything that they go over in the docuseries, but a couple of weird things. There was a TB outbreak, so that's tuberculosis, in the hotel. This was days after Elisa was found. This made sense because there was a decomposing body in the water tank that guests were using for showers and teeth brushing and ice and other things. So that made sense about the outbreak, but there's more to it. The lab test that confirms TB is called the Lamb ELISA, and that's all capitals spelled exactly like Elisa Lamb, spelled the same way, but the words were reversed. Elisa attended the University of British Columbia, as we know, and they also have a prestigious TB research center there. Some people were saying that she may have been a biological weapon. I thought that was a bit excessive. 
The test was interesting. The last bookstore was the bookstore that Elise that uh, Elisa visited. Now that I've said the Lamb Eliza, now I can't say it right. All right. So the last bookstore that Elisa visited, no pun intended, they sold her books and they also had them delivered to the hotel for her. That was seen on the footage. The two gentlemen that dropped off the books were not seen coming back to the hotel again. But if you go to the registrar of that store, it shows the zip code, which brings up Burnaby, BC. And the pinpoint for the center of that town is the cemetery where Elisa is buried. Some strange things in this case, really kind of a mystery, wouldn't say that it was unsolved, but again, always interested in your opinion. This was an excellent docuseries. I felt it was well organized and I think they interviewed a good assortment of people. They had historians and researchers and hotel managers, maintenance workers, pretty much everybody that you would want to see interviewed for this. They had a lot of people together on telling different versions of it. You got a good history of the Hotel Cecil, kind of makes you really want to just go there. I had an interesting story <laughs> as I was watching this docuseries again, pulling my research together, kind of coming up with what I thought happened. I started mapping out the location of where this is and where this was because I do remember when I first moved to LA, whew, maybe 12, 13 years ago, I used to work on Wilshire Boulevard and I used to take the 20 bus all the way down Wilshire and I used to take it to some stop that I can't remember and I would catch the Montebello 50 which would take me back to Pico Rivera and I was staying with my cousin who lived out there until I got my own place over the hill as we called it. And so anyway I'm looking at the bus route because I remember distinctly there was one night that I was working late and I ended up having to take the bus to a further location to try and catch my bus. I had missed it from the normal stop that I took so I knew if I took the 20 all the way down to the next stop I could probably intercept my bus as it went through this area. And so I did that and I I, I knew I was only going to have to wait maybe seven to 10 minutes. Thankfully, I did because it was a really shady area. I remember getting off the bus and being uncomfortable for the very first time in my life. I had been in rough neighborhoods before. I wouldn't necessarily say I spent a lot of time in rough areas by myself, but it was an uncomfortable feeling uh, realizing that there was literally nothing around me and it was dark and it appeared to be one of these places where anybody could just pop out and grab you and kill you and <laughs> nobody would know. And I happened to be on the phone with a good friend of mine that I've known forever, was standing there waiting for this bus and this, I guess, homeless woman came up to me and she was asking me for something and asking me for directions and I told her I didn't know I had been in this area before she made a comment about my appearance and gave me a compliment and I was like okay thanks and my friend kind of laughed about it and I was just really uncomfortable like this place is crazy as hell and I remember that it was Main Street and so I get on the bus thankfully I get I make it home and coming back to today as I'm doing the research for this hotel and where it is I map out where Wilshire Boulevard is and the path that I would have taken and I was maybe either right almost in front of the hotel or about a half a block from it (laughs) and which is part of that 56 block radius of skid row so it was maybe about 10 o'clock maybe 10 30 at night alone I think I was maybe 20 years old on skid row (laughs) waiting for a bus 
Uh, so this was actually before Elisa Lam had even gotten there. So before the stay on Maine and before all of that. And uh, actually, no, I think the stay on Maine was a thing at that point. Anyway, everyone, this was a fun episode. I do enjoy digging into some true crime every once in a while. I do have a lot of true crime podcaster friends that I would like to collaborate with. This is my official shout out call to action. All of you podcasters that are listening that are into true crime. Let's do it. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Real Film Reviewed. Before I go, show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Check out the Real Film Reviewed website, real-film-reviewed.productions to stay up to date on episode releases, podcast updates, episode transcriptions, and more. Follow Real Film Reviewed on Twitter at RealFilmPKC. Check out the online store Real Merch to pick up some gear to represent. Happy watching, everyone.